words. I'm sure some struck you. I love that phrase, quietly sovereign, reminding that God is always on His throne, working in the details of our life, those things that will bring Him glory and conform us to the image of Christ. We need but to take time to notice His working in our life and to give Him thanks and to yield to Him our trust and obedience in all things. Let's pray and then we'll open up His Word. Father, we thank You for the great privilege of hearing Your Word. Without fear, we're reminded of Saeed in that prison cell over in Iran and many other places where Your people are persecuted for the simple act of opening Your Word and being caught with Your Word. Many places where our brothers and sisters could not enjoy the freedom of sitting here in these pews undistracted by the fear of some coming in to stop the service or take us away. We have a great privilege indeed and we pray that we would take full advantage of it and give you gratitude for it and that we would take full advantage by listening intently and attentively and we ask you to bless our time in these few moments we have together in preparation for your table that you would by your spirit so take your word and apply it to our hearts and our minds to cause us not only to hear with our ears, but to taste with our hearts, to have a sense of, a fear for, an affection for the very God that we will hear proclaimed from your scriptures. So, Lord, we ask you to bless this time. And in that blessing, cause this worship to be transforming, to mold us into the image of your Son. We pray these things in his most precious and matchless name. Amen. Well, as we began last week, the, a too brief two-part series on the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, this time of year is a time where we as Christians set it aside very often to remember particular aspects of the life and the glory of our Lord and His salvation. And that begins with the eternal plan of the Father, but it begins in its, uh, His accomplishing it with the incarnation of the Son of God. Now it has been well noted that a man may be an expert on the incarnation and yet be totally lacking in faith and love, one has remarked. And it is possible and indeed sadly true that for many throughout the ages they know, even believe, the truth about God they hear and about the gospel but without ever truly experiencing the reality of it in their heart and in their life. This is the very issue with the Pharisees that we see who represent all of those in that ilk who are religious and yet have not experienced the regenerating work of God who are not righteous in Christ. That they knew much about God and much about the Scriptures and yet they had no love for God. They had no humility before Him. They had no reality of spiritual life that motivated and enlivened and uh, informed everything that they did. For the Christian, however, to know the truth about God, to know the truth about His grace in Christ, is to also taste the sweetness of it in our hearts. It is to hear truth and to build our lives upon that truth, to rest in it. It is to have our affections drawn more and more to Him and to His glory. It is not simply doctrine 
that we delight in. It is not cold facts of Scripture, but it is that in them we have the revelation of our great and glorious God whom we love and who is revealed in them and has who revealed himself to us in them. And yet, even still, the glory of the gospel of grace and truth can become commonplace and it can fail to capture the wonder of the hearts of God's people because we've heard it so many times and yet not often enough to meditate on and consider the implications of it and the glory of it. And so it is with the reality of the incarnation of the Son of God. Commenting on this loss of wonder at the incarnation and its end, which is our redemption, Christian essayist Dorothy Sayers makes these penetrating comments. Quote, So that is the outline of the official story, the tale of the time when God was the underdog and got beaten when he submitted to the conditions he had laid down and became a man like the men he had made. And the men he had made broke him and killed him. This is the dogma we find so dull. This terrifying drama of which God is the victim and hero. If this is dull, what in heaven's name is worthy to be called exciting? Now we may call that doctrine exhilarating or we may call it devastating. We may call it revelation, or we may call it rubbish. But if we call it dull, then words have no meaning at all. That God play the tyrant over man is the usual dreary record of human futility. But that man should play the tyrant over God and find him a better man than himself is an astonishing drama indeed. Any journalist hearing of it for the first time would recognize it as news, Those who did hear it for the first time actually called it news, the good news at that, though we are likely to forget that the word gospel ever meant anything so sensational. And she has indeed put her finger on the amazement of how easily we as God's redeemed can lose the wonder of what God has done to accomplish our salvation. The glory that we rehearse This morning and at Christmas is the glory of the Son of God becoming man by the power of the Holy Spirit in accordance with the eternal plan of God to redeem sinful men through His own suffering and a display of His glory and to bring us into fellowship with Himself. This is truly reality that is deserving of the exclamation, awesome, a tremendously overused word. Now we began last week at our look in the Incarnation into three categories. The problem of the Incarnation, guarding against error. The person of the Incarnation, that God, man, and one person of Christ. And the purposes of the Incarnation, which is to reveal the invisible God, redeem fallen man, and to bring us into communion and fellowship with Himself, indeed the Father and the Son by the Spirit of God. Now, once again, to have our thoughts clarify, let me give to you a concise definition of the incarnation. And I quote, it mean, meaning in flesh, the incarnation defines the act wherein the eternal God, the Son, took to himself an additional nature, humanity, through the virgin birth. By that act, Christ did not cease to be God, but remains forever fully God and fully man, two natures in one person. End quote. 
Now, such a concise statement of faith, which is indeed more concise than what I gave you last week, though it reflects that when we had the Council of Chalcedon in 451, which is a statement that we have stood on for years and is an orthodox expression of the church's faith in Christ. But such a concise statement of faith is the fruit of the church hammering out clarity of expression against the early attacks on the person of Christ. These early attacks denied either his full deity or they denied his full humanity in a variety of ways. Now, I mentioned several last week, and one was the error of doceticism. Now, doceticism states that Christ was divine, and yet he was not fully human. Indeed, he only appeared to have human flesh. He only appeared to be fully man, but he was not. The Apostle John himself was engaged in fighting this heresy, among others, and demonstrates the seriousness of it in an interesting account given by the historian Eusebius in an interaction that John had with an early heretic that promoted doceticism by the name of Serinthius. So Eusebius gives this following account. John the Apostle once entered a bath to wash... But ascertaining Serinthius was within, he leaped out of the place, fled from the door, not enduring to enter under the same roof with him, and exhorted those with him to do the same, saying, Let us flee, lest the bath fall in as long as Serinthius, that enemy of the truth, is within. A dramatic response to being even under the same roof with a heretic who would deny the nature of Christ. Now, John had the right attitude toward error because it is such a crucial area. It is such an essential area for us to be correct on. It is to do with the nature of God and thus the gospel. In fact, John has already warned us about this. I read it last week. Let me uh, remind us of it in 1 John chapter 4. He says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world, and by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now is already in the world. You are from God. Little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore the world, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and he who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Simplified, those who have been born again by the spirit of God recognize Christ and the fullness of his person as both God and man. Those who have not experienced a new birth and in fact are being blinded by the spirit of Antichrist deny the reality of the truth of Christ. And of course that would include every cult that has a wrong view of the person of Christ. Is this on or do I need to use this? Okay, got it. Now last week we noted briefly then the deity of Christ. This week we will briefly consider his humanity and the purposes of the incarnation. So not only is Christ fully God, he is fully man. Turn back with me, if you would, to the Gospel of John, which is what we'll use as our launching point, though we'll be jumping around this morning. John chapter 1. 
John chapter 1, one of the most glorious presentations of Christ in the fullness of his deity and the reality of his humanity. We noted verse 1 through 3 last week. Jump down to verse 14. Verses 1 through 3 established Christ under the title of the Word, the eternal Word. The rest of John's gospel is going to unfold for us that this is none other than the Son, This eternal word who was in the beginning with God, who is eternal. This eternal word, the Son, who was with God. So separate then the person of God is the person of the Son. And yet who is God. In other words, he is everything that makes God, God. Everything that makes God, God could be said of the Son. And then he says in verse 14 of chapter 1. That this word, the word, became flesh. Now, this is the incarnation, full deity clothed in perfect humanity. It is a one-time event. It is a unique event. It is an event that is only going to happen once, only happened once, will never happen again. And therefore, Scripture describes the uniqueness of this event in a variety of ways. Let me just read some of them to you. In John 1.14, we just read it, is to say the word became flesh. In John 3.13, Jesus says this, that he came down out of heaven. In Philippians 2.5, it is to say that he who existed in the form of God took the form of a slave. In Colossians 2.9, it's stated this way, in him dwelled all the fullness of deity in bodily form. Romans 8.3 says that he was found in the likeness of sinful flesh. Hebrews 2.9 says that for a little while he was made lower than the angels. 1 Timothy 3.16 says that God was manifest in the flesh. All of these ways of the scripture, biblical writers, to capture the wonder of God the Son uniting himself to humanity. Now again, John has already identified the word, which is unfolded as the Son, as Eternal God as God. In chapter 4, verse 24, John says this, recording the words of Jesus, that God is spirit, that God is spirit. Now, there's a particular reference there to the Father, but it is also a statement about the nature of God and each person who is God. That is then the Father and the Son and the Spirit are by their nature spirit. Pure spirit. Therefore, Jesus, the Son, in his pre incarnate state, as Paul said, existed in the form of God and was in the beginning before creation. That is to say, that before creation and before he or before he united himself in humanity, that Jesus existed as infinite and eternal spirit. He then moved from his pre incarnate state in the form of God. The state is infinite spirit to unite himself to finite humanity. And that is what John is capturing in that word. That he became flesh. He took on or added to himself what what he previously did not have, namely humanity. And this was not a temporary condition that he took upon himself, but it was one that would last from that point on. In other words, it is a permanent reality. He united himself to flesh in the mystery of the incarnation and forever has that flesh in union with himself as the God-man.
Now let me note two things that that does not mean before we talk about this more specifically. First of all, it does not mean this. He did not, or it does not mean this, that he in any way gave up his attributes of deity. He did not cease being God in all that it means to be God. So everything that makes God, God, Christ is that, has always been that, will always be that. Otherwise, he would not be the God-man. In Philippians 2.7, again, Paul states it this way. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, in other words, to be held on to, but emptied himself. Now, this is sometimes referred to as the kenosis. You may have heard that. That's because it's the word, uh, the Greek word that's behind what is translated as emptied. And after making this statement, then, Paul defines what this emptying is. He says it's Christ taking on the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of men and found in appearance as a man. Thus, this emptying is not a matter of what he ceased to be, namely God, but it was a matter of adding to himself his deity, the reality of humanity. What he gave up for a season was the full enjoyment and display of his divine person and his prerogatives. Indeed, it was because he united himself to humanity that the end of that, Paul declares, was for him to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then, of course, exalted to be the savior of men. We got a peak of this hidden glory that Christ has as God on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. But the Christ that we are confronted with throughout the Gospels and Scriptures is the God-man. Secondly then, not only does it not mean that he gave up anything that qualifies him as God, but it means that he was not simply a man whom God later came to indwell at the baptism of John. Now, we mentioned that again last week. That's the era of adoptionism. To say that he was born a man like any man, later God made him the son at the baptism, and it was in that moment that, that he became the son of God. John distinctly denies that. He was the son of God united to humanity from birth. He was eternally God, who at the predetermined time and within the eternal counsel of the Godhead took on flesh, born of a woman, the Virgin Mary. Let me read to you two passages. Galatians 4.4 When the fullness of time came, in other words, at exactly the right time in the history of the world, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Hebrews 10.5 says this, Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. This is to say then, at the very point of the miraculous virgin conception, through the creative act of the Holy Spirit, the very real child developed in the womb of Mary, from whom Christ received His humanity. He was in her womb attached to an umbilical cord through which he received nourishment from her body. Everything that was necessary to grow and develop like any other fetus in the womb. At the same time, the eternal, infinite and almighty, holy son of God and fully God was 
still God, though he was also a human baby. Fully God and fully man. The statement in the song that we sing captures what is a part of this truth, namely that, Mary, did you know when you kissed your baby boy, you kissed the face of God? So he became flesh. Now, flesh is used a couple of ways in scriptures. Paul uses it very often to refer to the sinfulness of humanity, that unredeemed part of our humanness, that part that longs for what we will receive in the eternal state once we pass from this world into the next, that part of us that still retains our sinfulness, our sinful habits and our sinful thinking. However, here it is used in its literal sense of the human nature, of literal flesh and blood and bones and everything else that comprises genuine humanness apart from sin. And that is a very key point. Christ was a human who was without sin. He had no human father, again conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, and the sin of Adam was not passed down to him. That's why he's referred to in Luke 135 as the holy thing that was created in the womb of Mary. He was without a sin nature. And in this sense, then, Christ in the womb and Christ as a man was just like Adam when he was first created. Indeed, he's called the second Adam. He was a man who did not possess a nature of sin. But it's more than that. Unlike Adam, Christ never committed sin during his life. Never. He never once committed sin in thought, in intention, in attitude, or in action. He never committed sin. And he did this in his humanity and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, for some, this is a problem. Some would claim then that in order for Jesus to be truly human, in order for him to truly experience all that it means to be human, that he then had to also have a sin nature. That he had to know the reality of sin in him and in his humanity. Let me make simply three brief responses to that. First of all, to say that is blasphemy, for he is God. And it would be then to attribute sin to God. He could not be called the Holy One and our Savior if he were to sin. It is impossible for God to sin. And he was united to flesh. Therefore, if in his union with humanity he were to have sin, then it would be to mar the character and the nature of God with sin, which is an impossibility. Secondly, it would disqualify him from being a substitute sacrifice. He would then have his own sin that needed to be atoned for. But in fact, he came to be the atonement for the sin of his people. He could not be the savior of man, nor could he remain God if he had sin in his human nature. Thirdly, this contains an abysmally wrong assumption. What do you think that assumption is? The assumption is this, that the truest part of humanity is identified in its sinfulness. That the truest part of humanity is identified in its sinfulness, in its fallenness. In fact, just the opposite is true. Sin mars and distorts everything that humanity was created to be and that we should be. Adam and Eve 
before the fall were the epitome of humanity and each was without sin. Sin is an intruder. It deforms, does not, not defines humanity. In other words, then, because Christ was without sin, he was the most truly human person that ever was. Indeed, not only because did he not have sin, but he lived his life without sin in the fullness of the human experience. He had no sin, and he perfectly reflected what humanity is to be in perfect love to God and neighbor. In fact... As a side note here, what Christ was as the man, Christ Jesus, is what you and I are required to be by God's law and to reflect his holy nature. That is the nature of our sin. Inasmuch as we are not precisely like Christ, there is our sinfulness. There is our sinfulness. He is the model of what we are supposed to be. Now, Scripture overwhelmingly testifies to the sinlessness of Christ. Again, let me just read a few of these Scriptures. Hebrews 4.15. Just listen as I would go through them. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things because he was human, as we are yet without sin. Hebrews 7.26. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter 2.22 Speaking of Christ, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 1 John 3, 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. John 14, 30, I will not speak much more with you. The ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Nothing in him. There's nothing unholy in Christ that Satan has to accuse or to use against him. And, of course, one of the most dramatic testimonies of this is from the Father himself at the baptism of Christ by John the Baptist. Matthew 4, 17, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In fact, even the enemies of Christ bear witness to his sinlessness. John eight forty six To the Jewish leaders, Jesus could say, Who convicts me of sin? And, of course, their silence was a testimony to the fact that there was no sin he could be accused of. Judas himself testified that he betrayed innocent blood. Pilate's wife testified that he was a righteous man. The thief on the cross testified that he had committed no crime. The centurion at his crucifixion proclaimed, certainly this man was innocent, dikaios, righteous. The demons declare that he is the Holy One of God. Christ had no sin, and because of his sinlessness, he was the most fully and truly human man that ever lived. He was, as was mentioned before, the second Adam. The second Adam. And note the marvel of Christ's sinlessness. Adam was created without sin, 
placed in a garden and in an environment where there was no sin, only the glory and the blessing of God, harmony with God and all of creation. And yet, in that environment, that perfect environment, he sinned. Christ comes as the Son of God and in his humanity into a world of darkness, of corruption, of pollution, of deception, of rebellion against God, being the center of attack by the very evil one himself who tries to get him to sin. And yet he lived in that world, never once committing an act of sin. That is the glory of Christ. And he did that not in some ethereal state. He did that as a man for us and for our salvation. He remained completely without sin. Therefore, the glory of his sinlessness as a man in our place is astonishing. His humanity not only was sinless and real, it was authentic. Though without sin, he was subject to the same processes, experiences, and weaknesses of humanity. Hebrews 2 says that he took on flesh and blood because we share in flesh and blood, and that he was made for a little while lower than the angels. That means he had a truly physical body. He became tired, as we well know. He became thirsty, even on the cross, saying, I thirst. He became hungry. Such as in when he was tempted by the evil one in Matthew 4, he was indeed hungry, having gone a long period of time without food. He felt pain. He felt pain. He went through the same process of intellectual development and knowledge as any other human child. That is to say, in his humanity, and consider this for a moment, he gained knowledge that he did not have as a man. He grew in knowledge. This is what Luke says in Luke 2, 52. He was increasing in wisdom. The measure of his wisdom was greater at one point than it was a previous point. He grew in increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. That is to say, then, there are things as a man that Jesus did not know and had to learn. This is climaxed. In Mark 13.32, in this statement, Jesus speaking about his return and this coming judgment upon the world. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Now Jesus is professing here then ignorance of something that God surely must know. Ignorance cannot coincide with omniscience, which is an essential attribute of deity. And yet, in a real sense, both existed at the same time in the person of Christ. And it is here, then, that we see the self-limitation of the incarnate God. This self-limiting goes beyond knowledge, however, of his return and is seen, sometimes missed, and this is missed, in many other occasions in the life of Christ. For example, during the temptation in Matthew 4, 3, the Satan tempted him to turn those stones into bread, which certainly he could have done if he were to have acted in his own prerogative and power as the Son of God. But he did not because he was fully submitted to the Father, waiting on the Father to provide what he needed. He could have called 12 legions of angels to rescue him from the cross in Matthew 26, and yet he did not. 
He submitted himself to everything that had been ordained for him as the Messiah by the Father. He submitted the power and knowledge available to him as God to the purpose designed for him in his humanity by the Father. Again, this is part of what it means that he took on the form of a slave and he was obedient to the point of death. As a man, Jesus had to exercise the same spiritual disciplines to maintain his communion with God that we must exercise as men. For example, we often find the Lord escaping to a private place to do what? To pray. To pray and to commune with his Father. We see that Christ exercised obedience and experienced the fullness of the love of God as a man because of that obedience. Listen to this amazing verse. John 15.10 If you keep my commandments, you will abide or remain in my love just as corollary to, just like, I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Love. He obeyed the Father as a man, as the Son of God. Indeed, he also trusted God fully with every aspect of his life. We sang about it in a song about how we are to trust God and how we are to rest into him. Uh, This morning we sang about that. So Christ had to entrust himself to the Father in every area of his life, demonstrating perfect faith. 1 Peter 2.23 says this, in light of the persecution that he received, he says that he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. As a matter of fact, he'll use that exact same language in reference to the church who is experiencing persecution and saying we, they, we are to entrust ourselves to God in doing what is right. He submitted to the Father. He says, I always do the things that are pleasing to him in John 8, 29. Not only in spiritual disciplines, but in the emotional life of Christ. He was fully human. And he indeed experienced, I believe, intensity of human emotions that's beyond anything that we have ever experienced. He experienced the full range of human emotions to their greatest degree. Our emotions are very often based on, particularly in their intensity, on the intensity of our love and our knowledge and understanding of things. And he was perfect in both of those. In Luke 19.41, he wept over Jerusalem. He understood more than anyone alive on the earth the destruction and the devastation and the tragedy of the people of God who had received the covenants and the promises of God and yet rejected their own Messiah and were to experience instead his wrath. No one understood that like he did. When he wept, it was the deepest possible emotion that could have been felt. In John eleven thirty five through 38 he wept because of his repulsion at the effects of sin. At the Pharisees, in Mark 3, 5, he looked at them with anger. Because like none other, he understood the hypocrisy and the hardness of their heart. He understood their self-righteousness and all of that implied. And he had, in that moment, a perfect anger towards them as a man. 
When he became flesh in every way, he took on the experience of humanity without sin. He lived on this earth, and as John would say at the beginning of his epistle, he is one that we touched and our hands handled and that our eyes have beheld and seen. It was a man that they saw after the resurrection. John 20, 27, Jesus said this to Thomas, who was doubting that he indeed had risen from the dead. Jesus said this, Reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. In other words, this is glorified and resurrected flesh and blood, Thomas. Put your hand in the very holes that remain in my body. In Jesus' case, that is a unique situation as a testimony to what he suffered for us in our place. It is as a man that he ascended into heaven before the eyes of his disciples in Acts 1.8. It is as a man that Paul says he will return to judge the world in righteousness. It is as the God-man he is the mediator between God and men in 1 Timothy 2.5. And this is the crux point. This is the crux point. It is man who owes perfect worship of love and obedience to God. It is man who has failed and rebelled against God and it bears the burden and the full weight of God's justice for our guilt. And so it is the perfect and sinless God-man, Jesus, who obeyed as our substitute and suffered in our place. Both the infinite glory and value of his deity as well as the reality of his humanity then are necessary for our salvation. Let's notice then this last point a bit more briefly. The purposes then of this incarnation. Of course, they've already been hinted at. They are to reveal the invisible God, redeem fallen man, and bring us into fellowship with the Godhead, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Back at John 1 again. Let me read these verses to you. John chapter 1, he lays out for us these purposes of Christ's coming. John 1, he says this in verse 15, beginning verse 15 down to verse 18. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Indeed, Jesus would later say to his disciples, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And it is in this way that we have beheld his glory. We have beheld his glory. An incredible statement. Encompassing all that the Old Testament pointed to. The glory of God now appears, not in the tabernacle and not in the temple made with hands, but with God himself, God the Son, dwelling, tabernacling among men in a human body. God in the flesh among his people. He is the glory of the only begotten from the Father, and he is the one who has explained him, exegeted him, made him known, revealed him in his fullness. And there's really no way to fully grasp the meaning of this to its exhaustive 
uh, amount of what there is to know. It's simply language in which the Holy Spirit has communicated to us the eternal relationship between the Father and the Son and what the Son has made known to us. What can be said with certainty is this, is that it speaks of, in terms of Christ's begottenness, it speaks of his uniqueness, his one and onlyness, that he is the Son of the Father in a way that identifies him as God, of the same essence with God, the same fullness of God, the same life of God, the same glory that he shares with God. Do you notice this term here, glory? What does glory mean? Glory speaks of the manifestation of God's nature, of his person, of his being, of his character. For example, creation reveals the glory of God. As Paul says, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature. When we look at creation, God's being, his power, his wisdom, his glory is put on display. Everything that God does, every time he acts, it is a manifestation of his glory. And it is a glory that Christ shared with the Father before the world was in John 17, 5. Now here's the question. Here he says that glory is revealed in part through his humanity. How then is that glory revealed? How is it revealed? Let me give you three ways. In Christ appearing, in his appearing as the Son in the flesh to reveal the Father, he reveals the glory of God's nature as Father and as Son and Spirit, something that was largely hidden from the Old Testament saints. He revealed the glory of God's nature, that God is one God as Father and as Son and Spirit. That is something that gloriously burst on the scene with the appearance of Christ the Son. He revealed the glory of God's power, not only in creation, but in raising the dead, in calming the seas, in healing the sick. And as we'll mention in a bit, in defeating the power of sin and death. For us, He revealed the glory of God's character, his holiness, his wisdom, his knowledge, his authority. Indeed, Jesus could say at the end of his life or near the end of his life, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Everything about the life of Christ, everything that we see in Christ was a manifestation of the glory of God. The greatest point at which we see the glory of God in the humanity of Christ, however, is this, or in the person of Christ, the God-man, is this, in that he came to redeem his people from sin. And the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 2.14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil." The full glory of his incarnation, specifically his humiliation, must be seen then at the cross. Indeed, it is what God accomplished at the cross in the redemption of fallen man that is the very high point and I would argue the very reason for creation. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. It is before the foundation of the world that God had intended to bring a people to himself in union with his son by the Spirit. John 12, 27 through 28, 
Christ says an amazing statement. He says, now my soul has become troubled. He's nearing the cross. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven and said, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And again, I ask the question, have you ever thought about this? How did the cross glorify God? That is exactly the opposite of what we would think as glory. We think of displays of majesty and power, and yet it is in that ultimate display of his giving himself up to men to suffer that the glory of God is displayed. Let me mention to you, we won't explain these, I'll just mention to them, at least five ways this displays the glory of God. You could probably add some. It displays the justice of God. It displays the justice of God. God upheld and displayed his perfect and unbending justice at the cross. He will uphold his law and preserve his holiness, even if salvation then requires that the eternal Son of God become flesh and hang limp on the cross and die and suffer at the hands of his very own eternal Father for our sin. God's justice is unfailing and it is unbending. No sin is ever not judged. And the true measure of our sin is measured, is seen at the cross, not in our specific acts, but those acts against a holy God who is so offended by them that he had to crucify his son in order to forgive us. It displays the justice of God. The cross displays then the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness to his promises first made in the garden, repeated throughout the history of Israel, beginning with Abraham, repeated by the prophets, unfolded, illustrated in the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifices for nearly 1,500 years before he came, and yet he came exactly as he promised to redeem his people. It demonstrates the justice, the faithfulness, and the power of God. The power of God to defeat sin and defeat death in our place, displayed ultimately in the resurrection of Christ. It displays the grace and the mercy of God. Fallen men often accuse God of being mean, of being hateful, of being unfair. That is indeed what describes the false gods of men that they create, the capricious, untrustworthy, unloving gods of men. And if they have some measure of love, it is at the expense of justice, at the expense of holiness. Yet God maintains them both at the cross and displays his glory, displays his glory, displays his own wrath against our sin, and yet his own mercy and willingness to forgive us of that sin at his own cost. It displays, lastly, then the love of God. Two statements. Paul says, God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John says in that statement that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And the accomplishment of these things depended on God becoming incarnate, the son becoming man. But this love and his humanity is no more powerfully displayed, I think, in all of Scripture, and I think that you would agree, than in Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane. It is there that the love of the Father for the Son is displayed. 
The love of the Son for the Father and the Son and the Father's love for their sinful image-bearing creatures is displayed in all of its fullness and magnitude. It is here in Gethsemane, probably more than anywhere in Scripture, that we see then the full humanity of Christ. He abhorred what was about to come upon him. Extreme loneliness and fear as he contemplated what he was soon to endure. And yet, with a will completely submitted to the purposes of his father, he endured, he went forward, he stepped forward in obedience to act as our substitute. One has captured this well, and I quote this uh, experience of Christ. Immediately after telling his disciples that his soul was filled with mortal fear, he turned away from them and he set his face towards God. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Luke twenty-two forty-one. There was nowhere else to go. Even the physical circumstances of his prayer make plain that it came out of a soul near the end of its resources. He throws himself prostrate on the ground. He is so exhausted by the first phase of his prayer that an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, Luke twenty-two forty-three. And when he resumes his prayer, it is in anguish, praying so earnestly that his sweat falls like drops of blood to the ground. Luke twenty two forty four. This is in line with the allusion to Gethsemane in Hebrews five seven, where the writer tells us that Jesus offered up supplications and entreaties to God with loud cries and tears. And it was in that condition that Christ, as the God-man, in our place, as our substitute, said to his Father, God, if it is possible, that let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but your will be done. And as Jesus knew, even as he prayed that, there was no other way. That was why he came, to drink the cup of the Father's wrath against the sin of his people. And Christ drank it down to the dregs. The same writer, speaking of this event, says this. The wonder of the love of Christ for his people is not that for his sake he faced death without fear, but that for their sake he faced it terrified. The purpose of the incarnation then was to reveal the glory of God ultimately by Christ becoming our substitute, standing in our place, enduring the fullness, the fullness of agony in his humanity of what that meant, but he did it for us. Thirdly, then, and lastly, it is the glory of Christ bringing us into eternal fellowship and communion with the Father. It is through our union with him and the Son and by the ministry of the Spirit that the fullness of of the incarnation is brought to light. The goal of God and salvation is not simply to keep us out of hell. It's not merely the forgiveness of sin. It's not only the forgiveness of sin. That's only a part of it and that indeed in one point in one sense is not even the greater part of it. It was to give us himself in the son. It was to share his life with us in intimate communion with himself. Listen to two verses, 2 Corinthians 5.18. Now all of these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. In other words, he brought us to himself. He brought us near through the cross, through Christ, through the incarnate Son. This is the love of the Father and the grand design of the gospel. One other verse, 1 John 1, verses 3 and 7. Or verse 3. 
What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The purpose then is so that we would have and enjoy fellowship with God. The same fellowship that the Son has eternally had with the Father and the Spirit. It is the believer's union with Christ and all that flows out of that that is the glory of salvation. It's not merely not going to hell and then going to church. It is that it is a life lived in vital, real union and fellowship with the Father and the Son here by the Spirit that will be fully experienced without limit in heaven, the eternal state. And that is what is the delight and the strength and the courage and the joy and the glory of the Christian. Now, such are the glories and the wonder of the incarnation. And yet, even after we've said all of this, we've only begun to scratch the surface. We've only begun to barely introduce the true wonder of the Son of God uniting himself to humanity for our salvation. We must always, at the end, really, of any discussion about the true glory of God, and particularly even in the incarnation, we must always, at the end, acknowledge that a greater part of it is still beyond our understanding. It's out of our reach. It's beyond our ability to fully comprehend, but is encompassed in the glorious mystery of the greatness and unsearchability of God. Though he is known truly, he is known only in part in the fullness of his greatness. I'll end with this quote, and then we'll come into the Lord's table. One captured this well. He said this, There are some matters that are beyond us. After we have searched to the limits of our finite understanding under the the guidance of the Spirit of God, we must at last fall upon our faces before the mystery of God in Christ and confess humbly that we cannot explain Him. But thank God we know Him, which is better than mere explanation. And it is this Christ that we remember In the Lord's table. It is the reality of his incarnation. That he became flesh and blood for us. That in his flesh and blood. He accomplished salvation on our behalf. He suffered for us. That's indeed what we remember. In his body broken in the bread. And his blood spilled in the wine. And yet. It was a salvation. That did not end in an atonement. That indeed could not have ended with his death. But was solidified, was gloriously finished in his resurrection from the dead, in his returning to the right hand of the Father. And as we await his return, we glory in our incarnate God who is coming back for us and has accomplished salvation for us. As I pray and you prepare your heart for the Lord's table, Meditate on these things, consider them, consider your participation in them. Whether you know this God, whether you know these things in your mind is one question, but whether you've experienced them in your life and in your heart is another question. Whether you truly say, I feed upon Christ, I feed upon the glory of God in Christ. His salvation is precious to me. Indeed, his very person is the most greatest or is the greatest treasure to me. I feed on the delight of the revelation of God in his word, and I pursue obedience to him in my life. This is what we are proclaiming. It's what we are remembering and committing ourselves to as we take the Lord's table. And it is a special and a high and a unique time in the life of God's church and of his people. And so examine your heart 
And see if there is also, for those who do know him, any sin that you are holding on to, any sin that comes to mind that you know that you need to deal with and become right with God on, whether it be a broken relationship, whether it be a particular lust that you've conceded to and not fought with all of your might, whatever it may be, now is the time to confess that and to get right in your intention in your heart before God. And then to glory in all that he's accomplished for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for our salvation and for the hope that we have in your beloved son. We ask you now that you would come and meet with us in a unique and a special way as we take the Lord's Supper and remember together as your people, as your body, we remember all that you are and all that you've done for us. And we pray this in your name. Amen.
in one of the most uh, full uh, passages in the New Testament of the church's celebration of the Lord's Supper comes in 1 Corinthians 11, words we read often together as a church body but that we never tire of and never fail to notice new and glorious things that God has revealed in it. New ways that we can, or fresh ways that we can worship him and delight in him. It is unfortunate that it comes in the midst of the sin of his people who are not functioning like the body. They are acting out of selfish motives, out of pride and selfish ambition. They are not loving one another and delighting in and preserving the unity that they have in Christ and by the Spirit. And so for that reason, Paul has to rebuke them. But in that rebuke, he gives us one of the most precious reminders and portrayals and instructions about how we as a church are to remember through the Lord's table the death and the resurrection of Christ, his kingdom, the glories of it, and his soon return. Indeed, there is much, much here to meditate on. He does also warn, as we know, and as was already said briefly at first, that to eat or drink of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, that person then will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. We are to examine ourselves, and having found ourselves to be recipients of God's grace in Christ, to have the Spirit of God in us by a life that matches that, that having so found ourselves, we are to eat in an attitude of worship. We are to eat in celebration of God and all that he is for us in his Son, in Christ. Assuming that's being done, we listen to the other parts of his instructions. He says this, For I received, Paul does, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this In remembrance of me and in our remembrance, we also proclaim him. Let us eat of the bread. As often as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, as I just mentioned, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He is our returning king. As Pastor Reardon mentioned this morning, we hope that he returns this year. I vote for before we get to our cars today. But he is returning, and we anticipate this return. And that's what we remember is this coming kingdom in its full reality yet to be experienced by us in the future. But indeed, it is coming. And he says this then, that as we take this cup, as the Lord did on the night of the supper, and said, this cup is the new covenant and all that that involves. It is the once-for-all accomplished sacrifice the coming of the Spirit, our union with Christ, the forgiveness of sin, and all that flows out of that relationship. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's remember the Lord's death. Lord, help us to truly take in, spiritually, in our hearts, the glory and the wonder of what we just celebrate celebrated and remembered. Help us to think often upon the portrait, the drama that has unfolded before us in the Lord's table of your death on our behalf, your resurrection on our behalf, and your coming glory and kingdom. 
and help us to order our lives in light of that glorious truth. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. David's going to come and lead us in a final hymn.